All right, let's go ahead and open the Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. We'll be looking there. So glad that you're here. Hope you've had a really happy Thanksgiving. I've been thinking about those two words a lot the last few days. Happy Thanksgiving. What, what a wonderful greeting. And, and I think those two words belong together. Because the key to really being happy is gratitude. It's thanksgiving. It's you being appreciative of what God has done for you. We had a great time last Sunday night as a church celebrating, talking about what God had done, eating some incredible food. Hope you had that same experience on Thursday. Maybe you come here this morning, you didn't have that experience. I want to say happy Thanksgiving to you today because we're about to take a meal of Thanksgiving. In fact, I don't want to offend you, but what I'd like to say to you today is happy Lord's Supper, because the Lord's Supper is called in Scripture the table of thanksgiving. It's the place where we give thanks. Now, I don't know how you grew up, and I grew up in a great church, but I grew up looking at communion as a very sad and somber time. There, there were some unwritten rules. You were to be silent. You were not to talk to anyone. You were not even to make eye contact. You were to just have your individual time with God. And it made even more somber because we would line up these men behind this table. Now, I do miss the table. I love the tradition of the table. But then we'd have all our men that we'd line up behind it, and you were required to wear a suit and tie. And I can always remember at our church, right before we'd walk up, the deacon would look back and say, everybody check your zipper. You ladies didn't know about that, did you? And, and so we'd all be ready and we'd walk up and we'd stand behind that and you were to look at a very serious, to me, I felt like I was a pallbearer at a funeral. And I can remember actually getting in trouble once because I was smiling while I was up there. Well, this morning, the point I want to make to you is that this is actually a joyful time. And, and here's the, the sentence I would like to start off with. The Lord's Supper is serious, but not sad. Uh, last week, we saw just how serious it was in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul said, it's deadly serious. This is something you need to do in such a way that preaches the gospel, that brings people together, that says it doesn't matter about your past, it doesn't matter what you have done, it doesn't matter your background, we are one in Christ. But it also is a time that doesn't have to be sad, and today I'm going to try to make that case to you, because most of us were brought up to think this is a very sad and somber time. Well, let's go back to where we were last week in 1 Corinthians 11. In, in verse 23, when Paul shares about this, he says, this is what I received from the Lord, what I passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And then he goes on. Now, here's where I need you to walk with me for a second. What was the night when Jesus was betrayed? In what setting was the Lord's Supper first instituted? It was the what? Anybody can guess for me? Thank you, David. David, thank you. You get an A. The Passover, all right? Now, what was the Passover? It was a celebration of when God had passed over the Israelites because of the blood sprinkled on the door. And the Passover was the moment where they celebrated their deliverance from the slavery of Egypt. 
In my case to you today is the Lord's Supper is the point we celebrate our deliverance from sin and Satan. Because I don't think in the middle of the Passover, when Jesus begins to lead his disciples in communion, he said, time out, guys. We're changing the whole atmosphere. We know it's been really exciting to this point. It's been a celebration. The little boy has asked the daddy, what makes this day better than any other day? And the daddy's told the story, and they've eaten a sumptuous meal, and they're celebrating. I don't think Jesus said, okay, guys, time out. We're going to do communion now. Let's all get real sad. Let's all get real serious. Everybody go to your own corner and take it. No, it's taken in the midst of this feast. And this is talked about in the chapter before, 1 Corinthians 10. Look at verse 15. He says, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf, we who are many, are one body, for we all share the one loaf. What's he saying? We are participating in the blessings of what Jesus has done for us. And then he uses some language I'm going to be using a lot today in verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Now, what's that about? Because, guys, here's, I think this is the determination of how you're going to look at the Lord's Supper. Is the Lord's Supper time at an altar or time at a table. You see, the altar was the place of sacrifice. We're going to see that in a moment in the Old Testament. The table is the place where we participate, fellowship, in the blessings of the sacrifice. The altar, the sacrifice is given. At the table, the sacrifice is eaten. I'm going to go back into some Old Testament stories, and I think I can show you this. If you're able to look on your phone or Bible, go to Exodus, if you would, chapter 24. And there's a beautiful story here of exactly how this went. Exodus 24, and uh, we're going to start in verse 4. Well, listen to this. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. So we're about to see a sacrifice and a celebration after they're given the Ten Commandments. There were three kinds of sacrifices. Two of the sacrifices also involved a meal. Only the burnt offering, which was only completely burnt up to God, didn't involve a celebration meal. The other two did. We'll see both here. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And he set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered the burnt offering, okay, that's one type, and sacrificed young bulls as a fellowship offering, that leads to fellowship, to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. Then they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people. You say, okay, time out, buddy. What's all this stuff about blood? Well, remember, in the Garden of Eden, God had said, 
that the penalty for sin was death. Scripture also teaches that life is in the blood. And so to make a holy place for God, there had to be death. And in the Old Testament, there were these temporary sacrifices that made room for us to be forgiven and for us to have life. He says, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all his words, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Wait a minute. If you know the Bible, that's a big deal. God was so holy that to come into the presence of God and to see him would mean that you would be struck dead because you were so different. But because of the blood sacrifice, they can see the Lord. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis luzia, as bright blue as the sky. Now, verse 11 is critical. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israel. They saw God, and they ate, and they drank. What's happened? The sacrifice has been given on the altar. Forgiveness has been found. Because of that, they can now sit at the table in the presence of God and live and eat and drink. Well, look at another, um, a little shorter verse, Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 6 and 7 says some of the same things. Build the altar of the Lord your God with filled stones and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. Sacrifice fellowship offerings there, eating them and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. You see the difference? What happens here is a moment of rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. So here's our contrast. Our contrast is between what happens at the altar and what happens at the table. And the way you will view the Lord's Supper in a few moments will be determined by whether you view it as a time at an altar or a time at a table. Now, two different actions happen. At the altar in the Old Testament, the animal was sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people. At the table, the meal was shared to celebrate forgiveness. That's the big difference. There's the sacrifice, and there's the celebration meal. And not only, you might want to add on your outline, did they celebrate their forgiveness, they also celebrated their reconciliation with God. Have you ever been so guilty, you've done, you've done so many bad things, you think God would never want to be around me? When there's that sacrifice, that door is open for not only you to be forgiven, but now for you to be holy in the sight of God. So there's the different actions. Now, I want to make this point before we look at the different atmospheres. The table happened in community. In fact, it was, it was impossible for it not. It was a law that once a sacrifice was made, the meat had to be eaten within, within one or two days. Well, that makes sense. Now listen, guys. The average bull that was sacrificed would have produced at least 800 pounds of meat. You're not going to be by yourself over at some table taking it all in. I don't know any of us could do that. It can be a table where lots of people can come. 
So the celebration of what had happened at the altar was a time of community. So that helps us. As we come to the New Testament, the analogy continues. There is a sacrifice, but it's not multiple sacrifices. In the Old Testament, I can show you stories where there are thousands of bulls sacrificed. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27 says, Jesus was the once for all sacrifice for all of us. So the altar took place at the cross. So what was the atmosphere? And then the celebration happened at the table. Let me just sort of give you a contrast in atmosphere. The altar certainly is a somber place. The table is a place of thanksgiving. The altar is very sad. The table is a place of joy. The altar is a place of solitude. The table is a place of community. So, I hope you're getting the point, not trying to be redundant here, but it's so important. The altar is the place where the sacrifice was made. For us as Christians, that's what happens on the cross. If you're not a follower of Jesus, what I want you to know this morning is that on the cross, Jesus bore all of your sins. He paid the price so you could now sit at a table with him and his people guilt-free and celebrate. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture we get this morning. You say, well, okay, buddy, that's nice. Well, how in the world did we get to the place where we thought Lord's Supper was just my individual time of being sad? Here, guys, I'll just, I'll just confess for myself. I can't confess for you. What I grew up thinking was communion was the place where I needed to think as sadly as I could about what happened to Jesus on the cross and feel, feel as guilty as I could about my own sinful life. So, of course, it wasn't a place of joy. I don't know how you grew up. How in the world did that happen? Because we're seeing here in Corinthians, it was a place in the middle of a mill. Now, they had abused that mill. Here's what happened. In the first century, when the first church first started, they took the Lord's Supper in the middle of what was called a love feast. It was just an incredible meal. I mean, I picture it like your Thanksgiving meal. If you had a great Thanksgiving meal with your family, and in the middle of it, you stop and you think about what you're thankful for, in particular, what you're thankful for what Jesus did for you. I'll never forget the first time I saw communion celebrated like this. I was a young 20-something-year-old youth minister. I got invited to do a retreat for a church out of Atlanta, and Sunday morning, the retreat, we got up to eat breakfast, and they had all this eggs and sausage and biscuits and bacon and everything laid out, and then they brought communion out in the middle. And you know, I didn't say anything, but I was like, uh-oh, we are in trouble. There's going to be lightning from heaven at any moment right now. But when I look at the Bible, here's the way it started. That's the way communion started, in the middle of the love feast. Now, even after when Paul writes this and corrects their abuses, Paul is not opposed to the love feast. He's opposed to them partaking the love feast in a way that negated the gospel. 
Because remember what I said to you last week? It was supposed to be this real big potluck where everybody enjoyed it. It had become a place where the rich people showed up early with their brown bags, and they had really, really good food. And the poor people came late, and they were already finished, and they're eating crumbs. And it's saying exactly the opposite of the gospel. The gospel says everybody is together as one. So that's the way it started. And it continued that way for a few decades if you read history. And then there came a point in the history of the church where communion and the love feasts were separated. And it ended up being this way. Most churches took communion together on Sunday morning, and they met on Sunday night for the love feast. Now, here's what really happened that was really powerful. The love feast became not just a feast for the church. It also became a benevolence program. So if you knew anybody who didn't have anything to eat, you invited them to meet with the church on Sunday night. And I'm telling you, that love feast was impacting so many people coming to Christ, they'd never seen love like that, that the church began to explode. One Roman emperor got so upset about this, he knew the key to the church's growth was this love feast that invited people in. He started a government benevolence program to compete with it. Now, how do most government benevolence programs do? Not real good. He couldn't compete with the church, he found out. Nobody loved people the way the church did. So we go through the period where it's together, then it's separate, and then we start getting in trouble during the Middle Ages. Because in the Middle Ages, there's this doctrine called transubstantiation. Say that with me and sound spiritual. Say it. Transubstantiation. Say it again. Transubstantiation. He's like, what in the world is that, buddy? What that meant was this belief that when you took communion, it literally, literally was the body of Jesus. Literally was the blood of Jesus. Lots of Christians' battles have been fought about that. Now, the practical result of that was the church that taught transubstantiation began to teach that every time you took communion, Jesus was re-crucified. That sounds pretty somber. And that was literally where your sins were forgiven. And listen to closely to what I'm about to say. That's when the language changed. They no longer called it a table. They started calling it an altar. And that's how we got to where we got to. And in the Reformation, the great reformers begin to say, no, 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 it's not an altar, it's a table. When you get to the movement our church is a part of, the Restoration Movement, Alexander Campbell draws up his dream church building, and the whole front of the building is one big table because they were about restoring that early church belief that we're not coming here for the somber, sad altar. That has happened once for all. Jesus does not need to be re-crucified every time we meet. We meet at a table to celebrate. So let me make a few points, and then we're going to do this together today. Why is communion, what I'm calling today, a very happy meal? Let me give you five reasons. Number one, it's what we've been saying today. We meet at a table, not an altar. The altar is where the sacrifice is made. The table is where the sacrifice is eaten and celebrated. 
Number two, we meet on Sunday, not on Friday. The church chose their worship day to be the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're not meeting on his death day. We're meeting on his resurrection day. Again, in my misunderstanding, in my mind, I used to think communion was more like a funeral service and laying on that table in front of us was the body or at least the ashes of Jesus. That's not how the church looked at it. They didn't look at Jesus as laying on the table. They looked at Jesus as meeting with them. We'll talk about that. Number three, we feast on forgiveness, not guilt. That's why that last week I could tell you this is the best meal in the world. I know some of us have had some powerful meals this week. But the best meal you ever take is what we're about to take in just a moment. It may not look that big, but when you think about what it represents, it is. And so instead of communion being my time to beat myself up for how bad the cross was, communion is my time to just give thanks. That's another term for communion used by many tradition is the word Eucharist. It's a beautiful word. In the Greek, it simply means thanksgiving. So this is a time not to beat yourself up. This is a time to thank God for what he's done. And then that brings us to number four. We commune with Jesus. The church has had the wrong debate whether Jesus is literally in the bread and the wine or not. The truth is he's not there. The truth is he is at the table. Scripture teaches he is the host at the table. He's here with us. I read this story in this book this week called The Gospel According to Jesus Christ. And a preacher talks about one week he had preached and they had, you know, taken communion. The service was over. And he had preached on the coming of God's kingdom that is on the way. And after church, a, a young man who is fairly new to their church grabbed him and said, i got to talk to you. He said, preacher, the kingdom of God is already here. Every Sunday, I used to be in the same neighborhood. I used to come down to a bar called Emo's, and I'd start every night with a drop of ecstasy on my tongue and wash it down with Bacardi. Did I say that right, Michael? Okay, I didn't. Michael, say it for me. I tried. Okay, thank you. I love our overcomers, okay? Now listen to what he says. That's what I did Sunday after Sunday. Now I come to church instead, and I finish the evening with the body of Christ on my tongue and wash it down with the blood of Christ. This is the kingdom of God. That's what God's inviting us to. We commune with him. And number five, guys, we commune with each other. This is not a solo experience. It's meant to be a place where we, as 1 Corinthians 11 says, consider the body of Christ. Context there, he's talking about the body of Christ. Oh, yes, we think of the body of Jesus given, but we also think of each other. And that's why as a church, in the next few minutes, we'll give you an opportunity to go to tables to get your communion emblems. That's our attempt One part of history I left out a minute ago that probably made the biggest difference was in 313 A.D., they built the first church building. 
Think about that. Until that point, the church had met in home. So this table community fellowship was just natural. But ever since buildings like this have been built, as much as we love it, it's become very difficult to do because of the way we're seated. And so our attempt as a church is to allow you a time in communion if you would like to go pray with someone or talk with someone or share what Jesus means to you or you just would hug somebody in the line to get your communion. Or if it's your choice to to stay at your pew by yourself, we honor that. But what I would challenge you to do is in the middle of that, at least look out across this audience and consider the unity we have as the body of Christ. So it's a place of communion with God. It's a place of communion with each other. So this morning, our question is not whether Jesus is present. We know he's present. The question is, are we fully present? My prayer is that understanding more of what this means will allow you to be extremely present in these next few moments. Present with each other, present with God, present in celebration of what God has done for us. John Atchison can share some great thoughts with you along this line this morning before we take communion. What a great celebration. I want to take our question for today and broaden it just a little bit. We talked about having joy at the table. I want to talk a moment about, are you having joy in your life? Here's the question I want to ask all of us is, are you enjoying your salvation? Some of you say, well, I'm not enjoying it because I really have not come to a saving relationship with Jesus. And I hope you've heard in and through this message today that everything we're centering around is what Jesus has done for us. Maybe you've been scared of church in the past because you thought church was just about judgment and about guilt. I want you to see that church is about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that brings you complete forgiveness and ultimate joy, not based on circumstances. And some of us who have come to Christ, and Satan plays this trick on us is that he takes away our joy. He's got all kinds of different ways to do it. He, he might have gotten you back into a life of sin, and, and your life has been overcome by sin. Listen, my friend, sin is not just wrong. Sin is enslaving. It will take over your life. Or maybe despite the fact that you've been forgiven, he just keeps you guilty for your past. He just brings it back up to you over and over again when God doesn't even remember it. Or maybe your joy has been stolen by what we call in church world legalism, which means I think I'm saved by my ability to keep God's law perfectly. None of us can. It's a terrible way to try to be joyful. In fact, Paul says in the book of Galatians, when he's writing about that, who has stolen your joy? And if you're stuck in legalism, I'm telling you, it will steal your joy. I think though most of us, if we're not as joyful as we ought to be in life, the issue is not our sinfulness or legalism or our guilt. The issue is our forgetfulness. We just get so busy 
in life that we forget how good God has been to us. And so when people see us, they think, man, those guys are miserable, man. I don't want to be a Christian, man. These guys, they must have been baptized in vinegar and eating, drinking prune juice in communion. I mean, it's just, I mean, I, it's so sad. And, and if we've given you that impression, I'm sorry. And, and brothers and sisters, in light of everything we've talked about today, in light of the table we've just met around, in, in light of what we have celebrated, my friends, we ought to be the most joyful people on the face of the earth. Amen? But I guarantee you, Satan's trying to steal that out of your life because if he can steal that, he's stolen your testimony. And so this morning, we're about to sing together. If you're new to our church, we have a, a time of openness where if you would like us to pray for you, just meet me on the front row and you can write something down and we'll pray about it. And maybe your joy has been stolen and you need the whole church to pray that Satan gets his clutches off you and that God restores your joy. Or maybe today's the day you're ready to live for Jesus and you want to be born again. If you need to come to him, that's what it's all about, come to him, why don't you come right now while we stand together and sing.